It isn't here. What's that? Your file. Could they be any more disorganized on the other side? Sorry. Namaste. I'm Pierre Chang. Welcome to the Dharma Initiative. How was your ride in? It was fine. Good. Who was your shuttle driver? Mr. Lafleur. Yes. Good man, Lafleur. Runs a very tight operation. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 509, entitled Namaste. This is the 95th episode of the series, and there are 26 to go. With that, let's jump straight into the Wikipedia summary, which tells us the episode begins with the crash of Ajira Airways Flight 316, piloted by Frank Lapidus. And it lands on Hydra Island. They land using the runway that was built by the native population and some of the survivors of Oceanic Flight 815, as seen in the Glass Ballerina. While the passengers begin to debate what to do, Ben begins to travel to the main island. He's followed by Lapidus and Son, who believes her husband Jin is on the main island. After reaching a group of canoes, Son knocks Ben out with an oar and travels with Frank to the abandoned barracks of the Dharma Initiative. Waiting there appears to be Christian Shepherd, who shows Sun and Lapidus a picture of new recruits to the Dharma Initiative from 1977, including Jack, Kate, and Hurley. He also tells her that Jin is with them in 1977. And indeed, in 1977, following the events of the previous episode, Sawyer explains to Jack, Kate, and Hurley the situation regarding Dharma and the shift in time. Sawyer arranges for the three of them to join the Dharma Initiative as new recruits, with help from Juliet, who forges the necessary documentation. Juliet learns that Amy has named her baby Ethan, who of course will eventually join the others. Meanwhile, Jin travels to the Dharma Flame Station because he believes that its occupant, Radzinski, will know if Flight 316 crashed on the island. There is no evidence of such a plane. However, an alarm is set off and Jin finds Saeed wandering in the jungle. After a brief moment of reunion, Jin is forced to act as if Saeed were hostile to placate Radzinski. Sawyer is summoned to the flame and moves Saeed to a jail cell at the barracks while he decides what to do. Later in the evening, Jack visits James and Juliet's house to discuss the situation. James tells Jack that he is in charge and has a different approach to leadership than Jack had. Sawyer, preferring to carefully plan out his actions, as opposed to Jack's more impulsive style of command. Meanwhile, at the jail, an adolescent brings Saeed a sandwich and introduces himself as Ben. And with that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. As I was watching this episode, I could not help but find myself just feeling that it was so incredibly jam-packed. Uh, indeed, it opens with a cold open, which is to say that there's no previously on Lost. That's, that's always a good sign because it usually means that the episode just needs that extra 60 seconds or so. Um, nonetheless, this is a, you know, a, a, a normal runtime episode, um, but just so incredibly jam-packed. Uh, we start with Ajira, our heroes quietly, tensively waiting, along with some shots of Alana and uh, a bit later Caesar thrown in for good measure. There's a wonderful wonderful little moment 
where the nondescript co-pilot starts talking about Hurley, recognizing him as one of the Oceanic Six. With that, there's the Telltale Island time flash, and I think for first-time viewers, and even some of us on a, on a rewatch, the assumption would be that we're about to see our heroes, uh, you know, or, or rather see the story from their point of view, as you know, a, a logical story decision would be to stitch together last week's episode with Jack, Kate, and Hurley, um, to, you know, and in that they're meeting up with uh, Sawyer and Jin. Now, yes, we've seen this exact uh, moment. I think that, um, you know, perhaps it might be hinting, oh, we'll see it from Hurley's point of view, or we'll see it from Saeed's point of view. Um, Lost might be well-planned, but rarely does it use an easy logic, because after the Flash, who are we with? We're still with Lapidus and the co-pilot. Now, that brief little mention of the runway certainly seemed to me, when I first saw it, to be a bit out of the blue. However, you careful viewers, of course, will recall that Kate and Sawyer were making this very runway, uh, and initially, uh, that dialogue, uh, you know, in that episode, the dialogue didn't make that clear, although I know that it was uh, intentionally specified later in season two to be a runway of, of sorts. I believe it was Juliet who brought that up. So again, it's, you know, you think back to when these episodes first aired and there would be so much time in between the seasons where even a diehard fan, you know, other things would go on in life besides the show and besides the week to week thinking about the show. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, well, it's all the, all the more reason why, we have things like Lostpedia. We have uh, the Lost Encyclopedia, which somebody gave to me for uh, for for Christmas, uh, and we have our, our rewatches to kind of really stitch together the uh, the larger picture here. Um, anyhow, in in that spirit of hey, it's that that runway that you might have forgotten the show had included from those uh, those seasons ago. It's at this point that the episode really really starts to feel very supersized, despite, as I said earlier, that normal runtime of 42 minutes. We have Caesar and Alana speaking, though it seems that they have less of a link um, initially than they would uh, chronologically later, um, or, or at least as, as those chronologically later scenes would suggest, if we, of course, have seen them earlier in Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham. And it's revealed that first Son, then Ben, are still on the plane as well. Ben is asked where Jack et al. are, and he says, How would I know? It's a classic Ben to end the act, but it doesn't end the act. Instead, we're told that it's 30 years earlier. The show kind of, not just skipping uh, the normal zinger, um, but doing so in a way that's, I think, continuing this season five trend of letting us be ahead of the overall story just a bit. Uh, we, of course, know where they are. It's swinging 70s Dharma, right where we left off last week, which is where things pick up with Sawyer sharing greetings with Hurley, Jack, and Kate. Uh, 
Jack only manages a handshake, whereas everybody else gets hugs. Um, you might think it's odd that nobody greets Jin, but that's because they had their hello when he picked them up, of course. That was done off camera. Sorry, Jin, you're, you know, a second second tier um, survivor. Uh, I guess that's just the way it goes, guy. But um, say lovey. Uh, he gets his moment off screen. Instead, you know, Sawyer has his moment to traverse two episodes, you know, traverse across from one episode to the next. Now, at this point, the show recaps some important information, the latter being for the sake of that teaser-ending zinger, and the former, I would argue, is placed there again to plant the seed that Locke on the island, from this point forward, well, just simply isn't. You're really here. Some bitch actually did it. Locke said he was going to bring you back. Where is he? John's dead. Dead? How? Doesn't matter. He's gone. So what's up with you guys in the old Dharma jumpsuits? You didn't tell him? No, I was waiting for you. Tell us what? Dharma Initiative. They came back to the island? No. We came back. And so did you. It's 1977. Uh, what? With that, the story moves into the title card and after it, there's some harmless exposition and recap about uh, the hostiles slash others and Sawyer wondering what to do. And then, only then, does Jack let spill that there are more oceanic folk about, uh, at least somewhere, possibly. You know, no need to let Jin know that his wife may be around somewhere, along with a whole giant Ajira plane until, you know, it can propel action forward for a new episode. Hmm, it's like someone's writing this stuff. Kate asks who else is back in 1977, which lets the camera cut to Juliet, asking Miles where Sawyer is, which in turn leads to Sawyer at home getting supplies for Jack and company. See, this episode is both giant and zippy. Sawyer packs clothes and tells Juliet, and although it's on the one hand just a recent recap, it does let the episode breathe a bit, as well as importantly, restate Sawyer's central problem, how to integrate Jack and Kate and Hurley into the Dharma Collective. Juliet offers a simple solution. There's a sub coming in today. The implication, of course, is that Sawyer can work his con magic with newbies arriving, and the episode at this point starts to feel fun, kind of in a heist movie sort of sense. Now, it should be mentioned at this point that the previous scene uh, the reveal of Sun being on the plane sends Jin off to Radzinski. This is a classic, classic lost move. Mention something that will catch our ears, but do it kind of in a quick and mumbly fashion. If you've been lazy and you're watching, it's simply where Jin is headed. 
However, if you remember those wonderful days of season two, where every hatch clue was dissected every which way, it's a gold mine. It's the Radzinski, who we've already seen. Well, you know, that smudge left by his brains anyway, as he dispatched himself by blowing his brains out, or so we were told by Kelvin. Not that, uh, not that we have any reason to distrust him, of course. With that, the story picks up with Jin, who's off to the flame, and uh, we see someone, Radzinski, is making uh, a little geodesic dome. The story is wonderfully twofold. There's the immediacy of, uh, you know, concerning uh, Jin, whether the plane is here in 1977, and it's also the kickoff point to take us back to the swan, back to our best hatch, back to that mysterious incident, and it's all kind of starting here. It's it's so terribly exciting, isn't it? Um, the story has this wonderful connective tissue to it as well, despite the disparate timelines, the 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 modern day timeline and the the uh, or 2007 timeline and the 1977 timeline. Uh, this connective tissue is shown when Radzinski asks why this missing plane is so important to Jin. Jin responds that it just is. With that, we have the familiar whoosh, which takes us to 30 years later with Sun playing with her wedding ring. Uh, Frank gives a standard boilerplate speech about everyone staying close and working together. And that actually, you know, that rather uninteresting, I mean, it's well written, well acted, but that ultimately um, not that interesting speech is actually a backdrop for Caesar noting that there are buildings and animal cages over there, which we kind of should have known already as the quote-unquote return of Locke uh, in The Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham had showed us that already. That It's a point to which we already know we are headed. Um, and since none of this is particularly new, and it's once again the show letting us be ahead, it does nonetheless have another narrative purpose. The show, uh, pardon me, to show Ben figuring out where they are, to have him slink off, and to let Sun see him doing just that. The scene concludes with uh, Frank seeing Sun following Ben, and the A story snaps back into place. Uh, not Caesar nor Alana, nor the very odd-looking extras, but the A story is Ben trying to return home, prepared to bring uh, Sun if necessary. At least, thus is thus is Ben's intention, uh, or and and his offer to bring her. It's that which ends the act. After the break, Motor Pool Juliet, just good old helpful Motor Pool Juliet, decides to just check on the old sub-manifest so that new mom Amy, who delivered last week, she doesn't need to lift a finger. Why, Motor Pool Juliet isn't on any sort of secret mission uh, to get that sub-manifest and fiddle with it for the purposes of uh, integrating the uh, you know, Jack, Kate, and Sawyer, uh, pardon me, Jack, Kate, and Hurley contingent. I, I kid, of course, it's a, it's a cute little moment. Uh, it's a delightful opportunity to see our Dharma heroes playing kind of secret spy. There is more, of course, for we've seen someone's life go full circle, but we're about to learn that we've seen these things almost in reverse. Hi. Oh, hello, little 
Have you and Horace decided on a name? Yeah, we have. We're gonna name him Ethan. It is a tremendously delicious little moment, a wonderful little irony of life. The man who helped bring Juliet to the island ultimately helped himself be born. The man whose vicious, stunning crimes against Claire and Charlie led us to cheer at his brutal gunning down, and that man is this baby. Back to Jack, Kate, and Hurley. They have a pondering moment as to what will be next, and Sawyer arrives. It's exposition, but the good kind. New recruits are knocked out, though we did kind of know that because uh, the practice apparently was continued by Ben and company when Juliet was brought to the island by, ironically, Ethan. Uh, but anyhow, the exposition continues that nobody knows anyone, so our heroes can just sneak in, etc. Jack, ever obstinate, wonders if they should simply stick to finding the other survivors of 316. Kate, ever the one to stay ahead of trouble uh, and to stay ahead of the authorities, opts for Dharma and Hurley seconds the vote. Uh, with that, there's a bit more with Jin and Radzinski, who haven't found a plane, but they have found a hostel inside the perimeter. The scene plays out a tad, obviously. The so-called hostel is one of our heroes, Saeed, and Jin is able to have uh, some uh, pally boy talk just long enough before Radzinski shows up, and Jin has to act like the Dharma deputy that he is. The scene concludes with the doublespeak, Talk and you die, said by Jin to Saeed, which is true enough. With that, the uh, story takes us to Dharma, the van. Hurley states that, uh, you know, what, what some of us at home are thinking. It's 1977, and isn't Dharma going to be wiped out in a few years' time? Can't everyone be warned? The scene, while allowing some interesting pondering, is, I think, largely an excuse to bring up Dan's theories of time, Dan is referred to as hardly being there mentally, and the van drives up to Dharma, the welcome party. At this point, there's a fun bit of costume, costume drama, seeing Kate uh, with her 70s shirt and braided hair, Jack in his rather dated blue polo shirt, and less so with Hurley in his hoodie, but hey. Things turn tense, or at least a fun sort of tense, as we learn that the secret plan is about to be creakily sprung. So with that sort of tension going on, uh, why not add more to it? Jin reports in that the hostile Saeed has been subdued at the flame. One soiry SOB later, we flash ahead to Ben and Son heading to an outrigger. There are three and Ben's taking one, all the more delicious to get that resolution of who was firing from the outrigger a resolution that never occurs, of course. Anyhow, it's at this point that the show reminds us that there is a quiet, driving undercurrent to this story, and it's the Sun-Jin connection. It's reinforced here as Frank catches up and reminds Sun and us that Ben is a baddie. Thus, Sun is prepared to follow Ben to the island, uh, kind of Simple, well, not even kind of, simply because he's teasing that that's where Jin may be. There's such momentum to the scene and its extension of that wooded scene, uh, you know, its extension to the outriggers, that it's only when Sun crosses behind Ben, out of focus, 
that we start to remember that in Life and Death of Jeremy Bentham, Benton was asleep in a makeshift hospital ward. One crack across the head with an oar later, and Ben is, in fact, on the path to that ward and not going over to the main island. Frank says he thought she trusted Ben. The son says she lied. It's shocking stuff, apparently, and it ends the act. After the break, there's a delightful scene of Jack being processed into Dharma. Why, by none other than our Dharma video-making friend, who now properly introduces himself as Pierre Chang. There's breezy, casual conversation that's tense because we know Jack shouldn't be there, although the tension dissipates with Jack being assigned to janitorial work due to his aptitude tests, we're told. It's a nice little acting moment, by the way, as Chang can't keep eye contact while breaking the news to the recruit that he's come all this way to be a janitor. Jack, unlike Papa Linus, takes it with a laugh. Everything's gone just so darned breezy and easy, the quickly conceived con so well running that why all looks fine. Then there's Kate. Hey there, ma'am. Hi. They haven't called you yet? No, not yet. What's your name? Kate. Austin. 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 Huh. You're not on my list. And you're not on the sub-manifest either. Who's your recruiter? Um, hold on, Phil. I just got the new list from Amy. Some uh, last-minute additions, including Miss Austin. Alrighty, then. She's all yours. I'm sorry for the mix-up. I'm Juliet. Kate. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the island. You have here some excellent dramatic structuring. The, the show shows things uh, going perfect and smooth for Jack, then nail-bitingly close to disaster, as Kate is almost outed by Phil. And Phil here, who's just really playing a range of emotions, going from that welcoming, you know, kind of, welcome to Disney World, guys, kind of smile, to suddenly quite ominous, quite monotone. And I mean that in the best sense. Um, kind of no nonsense and no pretense of, hey, we really want to make an effort to have you feel good here. Just kind of, you know, it's like a cat with the hair standing up uh, on its back. And it happens very, very quickly with with uh, Phil in this scene, uh, as well as a later one. Very ominous. And speaking of ominous, Sawyer arrives at the flame, where Jin fills him in on the situation. It's a busy day, but good old Sawyer, of course, will handle it. That is, until almost immediately, Redzinski starts talking about the swan plans that could have been seen by Saeed, and how the solution is a bullet to the head. It's... Uh, you know, it's to the episode's credit that it can walk such a fine line between two time periods, uh, having extended Chang cameos and Sawyer playing essentially two roles himself and LaFleur. It's, it's, you know, it, it's a high wire act, this episode. And what we have next is 
just adding to that pressure because the episode starts to communicate uh, you know, a sense of doublespeak so very clearly to us. My name's Lafleur. I'm head of security. I want you to listen real carefully to what I got to say. And if you do that, you'll be fine. Understand? All right, let's start simple. Identify yourself as a hostile. The terms of the truce say you got to identify yourself as a hostile, or we got the right to shoot you. We do not refer to ourselves as hostile, but yes, uh, I am one of them. All right, good. Then we can proceed like a couple of gentlemen. Let's go. I'm taking him back to the barracks. Look, you're taking him in, then I'm coming with you. This is a horrible mistake. Now, I'm going to talk directly to Horace about this. Fine, talk away. It's an incredibly, incredibly enjoyable scene, and it's one that that reminds us as to who the boss is. That it's Sawyer in the in the driver's seat for this entire episode, not only with Oceanic Friends, but frankly amidst most of Dharma as well. With that, the story returns to Sun and Lapidus, who paddle up to the dock, which now looks abandoned and worn. A quick cut or two later, they're at the barracks which are now incredibly creepy, if not downright scary, between the creaking, the hanging sign, and a touch of the whispers. It's an absolutely well-done little moment in terms of the, the set dressing, the music, the sound, and it only gets worse or, or better, depending on your perspective, uh, when a light goes on, revealing a man in black, which is to say the visage of Christian in the shadows, See what I did there? Because he's actually the man in black. Uh, when Christian says he knows where Jin is, <gasps> the act ends. And on the other side of the break, he's taken them to one of the Dharma processing buildings, ready to show them a picture. 76, 78. Where is my husband? Oh, here we go, 77. He's, um... He's with your friends. What are you talking about? What friends? picture is, of course, one of the group photo of the 1977 recruits, including our heroes. I'm sorry, but you have a bit of a journey ahead of you. Okay, ready? Everybody say, Namaste. Having flashed back to that moment that the picture is taken, a nice little narrative flourish, perhaps inspired by the uh, newspaper man photo in Citizen Kane, uh, the happiness is undercut by Sawyer announcing that the 14J is being brought in. We see Saeed seeing our heroes and them seeing him right back, and after a bit more of double speech on Sawyer's part, uh, we're locking him up here until we figure out what to do with him. Uh, the story moves to Jack, looking for the house of James LaFleur. He asks Phil, who continues to wonderfully exude the happy, all his rosy veneer. As Jack walks off, the look on Phil's face is that of someone who is snarling and suspicious and likes to hurt. Just excellent acting out of this guy. 
um, Jack meets Juliet at the door and ends up giving her an extra, extra long hug, which of course is setting up the reveal that she lives there too. And we see the look of Jack smiling through his confusion. Now, what unfolds is a scene of singular focus. Jack standing, Sawyer sitting. Jack questioning, Sawyer metering out answers. Jack confused, Sawyer settled. Jack out of power and Sawyer squarely in it. Matthew Fox plays the scene wonderfully, absolutely wonderfully, as someone who's angry and wound up, but needs to wind tighter to proceed with the niceties. All as Saeed, Sawyer's former foe, sits in prison, and Jack, Sawyer's former foe, is off-working janitor detail. Take a load off. You want a beer? No. No, I'm fine. What can I do for you, Jack? I don't even know where to start. Uh, how about with Saeed? Had no choice. He was running around in the jungle, got caught by my people. See, that's how he can't tell the truth about how he got here. I had to improvise. Improvise? Uh-huh. For now, Saeed is safe, which is all that matters. So where do we go from here? I'm working on it. Really? Because it looked to me like you were reading a book. I heard once Winston Churchill read a book every night, even during the Blitz. He said it made him think better. It's how I like to run things, I think. I'm sure that doesn't mean that much to you, because back when you were called in the shots, you pretty much just reacted. See, you didn't think, Jack. And as I recall, a lot of people ended up dead. I got us off the island. But here you are, right back where you started. So I'm going to go back to read my book, and I'm going to think. Because that's how I saved your ass today. And that's how I'm going to save Saeed's tomorrow. All you gotta do is go home, get a good nice rest, and you do what I do. Now take a note here to the slight western tinge to the music. Ain't that a relief? Yeah. I mentioned the music because the scene as a whole is almost a counterpart to Sawyer's There's a New Sheriff in Town speech from, uh, from way back when. Then he was a loner, angry, pushed to the edge. Now he's ostensibly the number two or three man at Dharma, admired, appreciated, entrenched, and thoroughly, thoroughly in control. As Jack leaves, Sawyer follows him outside. It's initially completely in the spirit of the scene. It's the gentlemanly way of running somebody off your property by simply watching to make sure that they're gone. However, it's a long shot, and Jack walks toward the camera with Sawyer in the middle and Kate pacing on her new porch in the background. The classic love triangle is back. It's been revealed and wordlessly, whether it's hinted at or reinforced or, or whatever is the best way to call it, um, 
and certainly as Sawyer waves at Kate and she waves back, it's kind of, you know, you know, here it is, Kate back in the, you know, in between these two men or, 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 you know, (laughs) mixed up with these two men. Uh, the episode at this point, it seems that it almost wants to end there quietly, softly, and without the normal zing. But we, of course, cut to the security office where a boy tells Phil he's there to deliver a sandwich. A boy wisely, wonderfully, who's shown from behind. You know, we don't see his face because some actors, even guest actors from previous seasons, remain memorable. Hello. I brought you a sandwich. I didn't put mustard on it. But if you'd like some, I could get some. This will be fine, thank you. Are you a hostel? Do you think I am? What's your name? Said. What's yours? I'm Ben. It's nice to meet you, Ben. It's a smooth, dark, sinister way to end the episode. It's not on the the high of an earth-shattering zinger, uh, you know, a big reveal. You know, he wasn't on the manifest. It's not that sort of that sort of ending. But it's a seductive call to next week's installment in this absolutely wonderful, wonderful season. Just, you know, what a what a cool ending. What a what a just a just this smooth, wonderful ending. Really, really really nice um this is just an episode that chugs along there's not a ton of mythology there's not a ton of advancement i mean yes jack and company joined dharma but you know yes we meet pierre chang but a lot of this episode is just setting up the pieces for for later on getting certain people in certain places that sort of thing um but it's wonderful fun nonetheless. There might not be a lot of, you know, a lot of mystery to the episode, but it's it's you know fun. It's well constructed, and uh, and of course we're not quite over with it yet. There's a couple odds and ends from uh, Lostpedia. Uh, first is that as the pilots, uh, pardon me, as the plane's co-pilot issues a mayday call, he briefly picks up a transmission of an automated voice reciting the numbers. The origin of the transmission is unknown, but the voice is very similar to the Dharma Initiative's original broadcast from the radio tower. So, they don't really <laughs> offer much of a conclusion there other than mystery. They also mention the names of most of the known Dharma stations and several other locations, including one called Temple Ruins, can be seen on the Flame Station monitors. Now, I will mention that uh, Lostpedia had a link to that, and it's Kind of the the green and black screens in Radzinski's. Uh, well, you know, I mean, they say the flame, so it, it's it's those. Um, 
very difficult to read, at least based on based on the Lostpedia stuff. I don't know if uh, I don't know. I don't know if I need to go upstairs and watch it on the big TV to really say, "Whoa, look!" They're they're mentioning these different stations, but at least it's there. It's uh, you know, it's a, a fun bit to have, and uh, just kind of adds to uh, adds to the fun of the episode. So with that, let's look ahead to next week's episode five uh, five ten. My goodness, we're chugging along here. Five ten. He's our you, a Saeed episode, and. Uh, It'll be great fun to jump into that one. I hope uh, if you are listening to this uh, around the time it's released, I hope everybody has uh, you know, had a uh, happy and healthy start to their new year. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to uh, a grand 2013 myself, particularly in the next, uh, oh, what, seven weeks? Seven weeks to finish this, uh, this season off. And then uh, we'll start the, the final turn for season six and the conclusion of Lost. So with that, everybody, I will say take care and happy new year and bye-bye.